two choices when it throws everything at you. You can let it swallow you whole or you take those lemons. And as the old saying goes, you turn it into sweet, delicious lemonade. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about. Welcome to Lemonade. I'm your host, Elizabeth O'Neill, and I'll be sharing the incredible stories from inspiring people who've turned the hardest times in their life, their lemons into lemonade. Because let's be real, we all want to know how they did it, the lessons they learnt, and what life is like sipping the cello on the other side. Let's get juicing. Welcome to this very special episode of Lemonade. It's the one year anniversary episode. I can't believe my little baby is turning one. (laughs) I can't believe it's been a year since the podcast launched and what a huge year it's been for all of us, really. I know for me, I feel like I've changed and grown so much. But it's also been, for majority of that time, it's been 2020 and I live in Melbourne and um, we've all been forced to change and grow in some way uh, because we've, you know, had to change and adapt our lives so much. So it's just been, you know, when I look back over the last year, it's been this exceptional year of growth collectively. But also for me personally, a lot has changed in my personal life and I know this podcast has helped through a lot of that, keep me on track and keep my mind busy and creative and keep um, feeling like I am being productive in the world. But it's also helped me grow and evolve and view things in a way I never would have had I not connected with some of the people that I've interviewed, which I think it's so important. It's so important that we hear from a broad range of voices from all walks of life because it's so easy to become so insular. And I really value that I've got that opportunity to chat with different people from different journeys and I hope that you know for you guys for the listeners hearing from these different perspectives gives you a new way of looking at things as well. I'm really proud of the conversations I've had on this podcast because these are conversations that can be uncomfortable to listen to at times but so necessary to start conversations and to ultimately help people feel less alone which really is exactly why I did start Lemonade. I went through a really rough time a few years ago and during that time I felt really alone and I wanted to hear stories of people who'd been through adversity and come out the other side and I couldn't really find that anywhere. And it didn't have to, I didn't have to hear the exact stories of what I'd endured, but I just wanted stories of hope and resilience and to hear how the worst times in your life will actually springboard you to a life you never would have imagined otherwise. And as I said just before, I did feel really alone and I hoped that this podcast throughout the year, I've put out these episodes, it's made people who are going through a rough time feel like they weren't alone with whatever they're going through. And I really also wanted to normalise conversations around mental health and sometimes quite taboo subjects as well, as well as create a really safe space both for the listeners and the guests to feel like they can share and for listeners, I guess, to feel like they're a part of that conversation too. I'm so proud of some of the feedback I've had over the last year as well. That's really what's kept me going because at times, you know, it is a lot of work and uh, I do have a lot of other things going on and I wonder if it's even, you know, making an impact. I wonder if it even matters. I wonder if anyone even notices, you know, a new episode comes out Monday, which is great self-talk, isn't it? Great. (laughs) Thanks, Ego. Um, But then, you know, some of the messages that I then get on Instagram, but also in the reviews really blow me away and they've inspired me to keep going. Many of them have brought me to tears and I can really, it helps me see that this kind of content 
is really having a really tangible impact on people's lives. And I guess that that really is all because the guests that come on are really so willing to be so vulnerable and brave. And I'm so thankful and grateful for that. You can hear so many of them say that they're sharing parts of their story that they've never shared before. And I really think that's because Lemonade has become this really safe space to do that and to share and to feel like whatever you're experiencing, someone listening has probably experienced something similar to or knows how you feel. So I don't know, maybe that's 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 why, you know, people people do feel so comfortable. Now for this episode, I thought I would take a trip down memory lane and trawl through the archives and bring you snippets from some of my favorite episodes, including some of the most powerful moments over the last year. And it wasn't easy because I can say, as you can probably tell, I've loved every guest I've had on, including the monthly Juice episodes with the incredible Monique Barry, which are hugely popular. And I've taken something away and unique from every conversation I've had. And I hope at least one of my episodes has had some kind of impact on you too. But I did have to narrow it down. And I thought, what better way to kick off the best of the best from the last year than with my conversation with Mel Gregg, which is probably my favorite interview I've ever done. And if you haven't listened to that episode yet, you'll want to after hearing Mel speak now. If you don't know, Mel was the radio DJ at the centre of the royal prank scandal. And the way she spoke about the experience and what she learned in episode 11 entirely draws you in. She's just one. I just adored every moment I was with Mel. She's honestly one of the most beautiful, kind-hearted Warm, like she welcomed me into her house like we'd been best friends for years. She was just just one of the most beautiful, kind, special souls I've had the pleasure of meeting. And the way that she opened up with me, the way she was so willing to share her story uh, and the lessons she's learned. And she really believed in this podcast because I didn't really have much to show her at that point. We don't. I was only a few episodes in and she still really took a chance and, um, you know, opened up like she did. And I'm so grateful. And I think that's just a testament to the kind of woman she is. She's really one of a kind and what she's been through, how she's come out of that to be who she is today is just so hugely inspiring for me. I hope you enjoy this too. Take a listen. This whole podcast is about doing what you just said then taking responsibility and taking ownership and using whatever has happened to you as a launch pad to a new life and a life you might not ever have imagined. What did you learn throughout of this? What what were the biggest lessons you learned? So for me, it was resilience because there was a moment with the when I started to get better, I started to read the comments that I'd ignored for so long. Even though I'd seen them, I wasn't digesting them. So because I was better and caring about myself again, I started to read these comments. And let me tell you, think of the worst thing you can say to someone, the absolute worst thing that was said to me every day for two years. People don't realise that this whole um, event, this tragedy went on for two and a half, nearly three years in the headlines. It wasn't just this one event that stuck around for a week. We had the inquest. We had things with the radio station. This was constantly there just all the time. It wouldn't go away. So while it was still active in the media, the trolls were still active. So for two years, the worst things were said to me. And I remember sitting there one day and it said, um, I'm going to kill you, then I'm going to kill your mum. 
And I thought, I'm like, hang on a minute. That's not an opinion. That's abuse. And then I started reading back through them all and I'm like, this, this is just abuse. This is not what people actually think about me. This is abuse. This is a whole different level. And that's when I realized what trolling was. And I started to go, they're just doing this to, to bring me pain. And I started reading them. And after like about the 2000th message, I felt nothing. I was reading them. I'm like, oh, oh, well, this is just a sad, awful person. And that's when I realized, I'm like, okay, when I was reading these, when I was going through my mental health issues, I sat on the bathroom floor and contemplated whether suicide was for me and it wasn't and it never should be for anyone and I chose life. But then I started thinking and going, okay, I was an adult and I contemplated that because of all the abuse. How the hell is a child reading these messages and getting through? And they're not. And cyberbullying is killing a lot of our children and suicide is the biggest killer of our young. So I created a, a, an incentive called Troll Free Day to help combat cyberbullying, ran um, an hour radio special to, you know, over a million people in Australia, went to schools and spoke to these kids um, to try and help them understand cyberbullying. Um, and that's one of the, the most powerful things I took out of what happened is, okay, I've, you've, you've actually got someone that can run a cyberbullying campaign because it doesn't affect them. As soon as someone tries to do good, they normally get attacked for it. Well, they can attack me and it won't matter. So I may as well help as many people as I can going through cyberbullying. Does it help knowing that these kind of silver linings and knowing you can help other people? I never want to say it makes it worth it, but does it make it feel like it wasn't all for nothing? There's this saying that people go, oh, you can't say that it's awful, but it has merit. Everything does happen for a reason. Doesn't mean it makes sense. Doesn't mean that it's that it's nice, but it, it does happen for a reason. And I think what happened in that situation has created a resilient person that can help others. Um, and you could go two ways in those situations. I could have crawled up in a in a ball and felt sorry for myself and never moved on. Um, or you can grab those friggin' lemons turn them into lemonade and do something with your life and use your tragedy, your trauma to see it for what it is and try and help other people. I do want to go back to the inquest, which you touched on before, because that was a really pivotal defining moment for you. And I know, I think I did read, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that when you went over, you were in a pretty bad frame of mind and you didn't think you would come back to Australia. Can you talk to me about that and about the inquest and why it was important for you to be there? I think the inquest, um, to be honest, I can't remember the exact timeline, but I know it was a good nine months at least after the prank call. So I was still battling at the worst of my depression. But my one mission was what can I do to help the Saldana family? And, you know, not many people understood that. They're like, well, look what you did. You didn't really help them, did you? And I'm like, you know what? Just this is something I need to know that I have now done everything I can to help them. So my legal team um, reached out to them and said, Mel's willing to come over to the inquest. Um, do you want her to go? And they welcomed me to the inquest. And, you know, the advice I got was it's too high risk. There's, you know, high chance of being injured you know, bodily harm, um, potential death. And I wrote my will the day before I went to the inquest, didn't allow any family to come with me, just let my, um, my lawyer wanted to come, obviously. So we went over and I wasn't expecting to come back. And I was okay with that because I know I was never going to move on if I didn't do it. 
And when I got there, it, there was there was a, apparently a guy standing at the front of the inquest with a headless picture of me. Um, there was mobs. It was it was pretty intense. But I had bodyguards. And again, I was still in that frame of mind that I was okay with whatever was going to happen. I was going to do what I needed to do. Um, and I sat in the inquest and I listened to it all. And, it, you know, there's some very sad moments. Um, and at the end of the inquest, I'd written a letter to the family and the, the judge allowed me to read it. And I stood up and I looked the Saldana family in the eye and it was the father and Janal and Leisha and I read my apology and Leisha the daughter and I had an eye connection and as I was saying sorry she was crying but I could see that the pain was for me as well as her mother going it's okay like we know it's not your fault oh, now I'm gonna get teary now I need wine yeah drink <laughs> but that was the well, moment when you I know, sorry where's your wine <laughs> grab it. but that was the moment where um she could see my pain and know that my apology was real. Let me get one. <laughs> I could honestly speak to Mel for hours and that podcast probably would have gone for a lot longer had I not needed to get back to my son and relieve my mum. <laughs> if you haven't listened to my interview with her, I highly suggest going back and setting aside an hour or so to absorb it all in. Mel is truly, truly incredible. Now, it would be remiss of me not to include the interview with my best friend, Georgia. She's known to everyone else as Georgia Love, the Bachelorette. But to me, she's my dear friend and she's copped her fair share of lemons. Within the 24 hours of the finale of her season airing, where the nation watched her fall in love and choose Lee, her dear mum, Belinda, passed away after a six-month battle with pancreatic cancer. Georgia's strength and resilience through the hardest times in her life continue to be a great source of inspiration to me. I've said to her so many times, I just don't know how you do it. And she tells me, she always just says back to that, you just have to keep going because you've got no choice. And I really love that about her. She really is one of the most resilient people I know. She really does just know how to put one foot in front of the other, even if though that foot, you know, even if that step is a very tiny baby step, she always knows how to pick herself up. Even if that picking herself up looks like a day on the couch, she just knows how to give herself that rest. And I really... I re- and, I, and not just that rest, but that space to feel how she feels. And I find that inc- incredibly admirable and inspiring. I loved my interview with Georgia and so many of you did too, because you could hear it was two best friends chatting and that made it, I think, so much more vulnerable and real. Here's a snippet of episode five with Georgia Love. Can you talk us through now the finale airing? You've, you know, you've picked your dream man in Lee. The finale airs, which as anyone who watches the show knows is huge. What was that 24 hours like after that? Um, after we filmed it or after it went after to air? After it aired. Okay, so um, it, it was filmed at the end of August and then it went to air the end of October. So we were kind of, you know, so ready for that to be over, to be able to leave the house together and see each other in public. Um, so it was the Thursday night our finale went to air. Um, and then Friday morning we kind of walked outside. We're like, oh, my God, we're allowed to be together. so weird. Now, on that Friday after the finale, you do a whole lot of um, uh, publicity, mm-hmm. radio interviews, yeah. the project, those kind of things. Now, mum was in palliative care at this stage, so I didn't 
go into all the radio stations and do all of that because I wanted to be there with mum. So we did a few interviews over the phone and then we went all afternoon and spent time with mum. Um, and when I say we, I mean Lee came as well. Yeah. Um, so that day, we spent the whole day there. We actually ended up cancelling the project because I didn't feel right leaving her. Mm. Um, so we spent all day and all evening in the hospital with her. The whole family was there. Um, we had family friends coming in and out. Uh, and we left at about... I think 9.30 or 10 p.m. And now mum was non-communicative by this point. Um, She was not in a coma, but almost. Um, She was kind of, you know, would make some noises but couldn't speak and wasn't very aware of what was going on. Um, So, yeah, we left at about 10 p.m. And then um, just after midnight, my dad called and said that um, she'd passed away. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to make you cry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, it always gets me. Oh, that was, what, seven months from diagnosis? Yeah, not quite. Do you ever just, like, per- firstly just think, how- did you get caught up in thinking, how unfair is this? This yeah, was very, supposed to be very. this way and why is it like this? Um, I never, I never thought like, you know, oh, this was meant to be my happiness of, you know, I'm meant to be reveling in the bachelorette ending. So this is unfair that it's happened now. It was never that. It was just, this is unfair. Yeah. This is unfair. It's, you know, she was so obviously apart from the cancer, so healthy, so fit, so, um, lively and it's just fucking unfair. Yeah. I know so many people who are in their, you know, she was 60. I know people in their 60s, 70s, 80s who eat like crap, who smoke. drink, they smoke yeah. and never exercise. And, and they still get to live their lives. And I don't want to take that away from them either. But mum never did any of that. Yeah. And it's just so fucking unfair. Yeah. Yeah, it's just unfair. And how do you... I don't know how you wrap your head around... Like, as we said, it was seven months. How do you wrap your head around that? I, I didn't for a long time. Um, that's what I was saying earlier about, you know, sometimes I wish that I had understood it more because the fact that I didn't meant that the grieving period was probably a lot later. Yeah than it otherwise would have been. Um, It was so... My whole life was so bizarre and surreal and strange from the day that I got the call saying, we want you to be the bachelorette. Everything was weird Mm. for that reason. But then, of course, because my mum was sick, everything, every single part of my life changed in those seven months. So nothing felt real. Which means mum passing away was almost just like part of this weird new zone that I'm in. Yeah, okay. Um, so while I was devastated at the time, I feel like the reality and the grief of it didn't hit for another few months when all of a sudden it was like, oh, she hasn't come back. Yeah. And of course I knew she was never coming back, but it was this... It would just hit like a ton of bricks months later. Just one morning I woke up going, oh, no, this isn't just this weird reality TV life that I'm in anymore. This is life. Yeah. My mum's not coming back. And that's why I get a bit mad at my mum and dad sometimes for not 
um, kind of explaining that and letting us kind of process that earlier because I would have liked to be able to mourn with her a bit. Yeah. And I didn't get the chance to do that. And that's made it really, really hard in the years following coming to terms with this new life in the public eye, with this new partner, with a new job, and then without my mum. Every single aspect of my life changed in that seven months. Still, I'm still coming to terms with that. Well... That wasn't what I was going to ask, but it's so palpable. You can hear it in your voice. What is grief like to you? God, I don't know how to answer that. I don't know. It's so, it sounds like such a cliche, but it's so different for every person. But I just look at three specific people, me, my dad, and my sister. We all lost the same person. Each of our grief is so different. So different. For me, for me, I'm the only one I can talk to because, you know, I'm, I'm the only one who knows my own grief. But it's it's just like a whole. It's just um, this thing every so often you remember because you forget too. It's always there, but it's not always right in the front of your mind. Um, but it's just this kind of ongoing thought of, oh, this thing, this lump in my throat, this hole in my heart, this this thing that feels like it's missing from my life will always be there and I think that's the toughest part to actually deal with everyone has gone through pain in their lives and you come out the other side but I don't know when this pain will end because the thing that is painful won't end because mum isn't coming back and yes it gets easier to live with as time goes on but it also becomes a bit more unfair as well because it's it's the it'll be the three um anniversary of her passing away uh, next month and i think fuck that's only three years yeah. i've got the rest of my life and like i've gone three years that's long enough isn't it yeah it should be over by now exactly yeah. and there's so many big monumental things to happen in my life still obviously getting married I want to have kids one day um you know I, I want to have all these these life moments with my mum and I don't get that and I know a lot of people don't get that I'm not saying I'm different to anyone else but it's just really fucking unfair Oh gosh, it's still hard for me to listen back to that one, hearing your best friend talk of the kind of things you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy But I know her speaking so openly about that grief has helped so many people and I'm so thankful she opens up like that with me. Now, the next conversation I want to feature is my most downloaded episode and that's episode seven with Sarah Jane Young. SJ was told at 20 weeks gestation her daughter Charlotte had a heart defect and wouldn't survive outside the womb. SJ bravely discusses what is usually a taboo topic, miscarriage and infant loss. In this uninterrupted snippet, SJ details with gut-wrenching detail the day she gave birth and said goodbye to her daughter and what the experience taught her. It's incredibly moving, powerful and, and very difficult to listen to at times audio. So a trigger warning with this one. Here's SJ. Again, I look back and you just, I was in shock and, you know, medicated 
because of what was going on. Um, I really didn't, I just was, I, I just don't even know. I'm just shaking my head. I don't even, I don't even know what was going on. Mm. I don't even know how you prepare for that. Like it actually makes me feel sick knowing, like I don't remember it. And I think that was my body's way of protecting me Absolutely. because no one should have to deal with that sort of trauma. And, you know, then I went to the hospital and the labor was the most horrific thing for every reason I my body was just fighting it and you know this is I went through a really after we lost her I really had this like severe self-loathing I cut my hair off I hated myself I didn't want to look at myself I threw out all the clothes that I wore when I was pregnant I didn't even want to look in the mirror because I blamed me as a mum. I thought I didn't protect her I should have kept it's my it's all my fault and it was nothing that and I knew rationally it was nothing that I'd done life chose us as I call it and we were this lightning strike but it was this I just hated myself and we went into the hospital and even though this is where I come back to this is my body was actually doing all the right things it was fighting this labor it did not want to go into labor and it took two days a lot of drugs and a lot of pain um And Erin, my beautiful midwife, when I talked about it, she didn't leave my side. And she was the one that told me, and it's now become sort of how I live my life. And it's, everyone has a story. And this is mine. And it's taught me to be far more patient with people. Because we just don't know what um, they're fighting. And we laughed and we spoke. We had so many hours to pass and to feel. And she was moving the whole time. I mean, this is where there's a part of me. I losing this any trauma, but my trauma was losing a child. It does not make you stronger. It breaks you, and you just have to find this. I don't know, this strength and it was to be on that birthing suite and hearing babies being born and crying and I knew that I wasn't going to get that and then it happened and she was born and it was silent and she was, I felt her moving a lot of the time and then it, it stopped and I, I, know, I know what had happened. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, again, I just, I blocked a lot of that out because that was probably the most horrific 48 hours of my life but then she was out and she was on me and I felt calm I actually felt calm in that moment because she was there and she was warm and she was on me and that was actually the moment I saw my husband break I've never ever seen him like that and it Again, I've blocked a lot of that out too. Um, But yeah, we had that and we had my beautiful friend there who took photos of her and I had another beautiful friend who was a midwife who lost her baby at 32 weeks and she'd said to us, take her home, you can take her home and I just didn't even know that was an option. I feel like, you know, the seven 
babies in Australia every day born, stillborn, and still so many of the staff, while they were supportive, no one just knows what to say. There's no... I think there's only one hospital in Melbourne that has a bereaved counsellor there actually on the birthing suite with these women, you know, and then afterwards you just, off you go, deal with it, you know. No one wants to know. Um, I'm so lucky that I had Erin and I had my beautiful friend Perry and we took Charlotte home. We took her home for two two days, I think we took her home for. And I'm so glad I did that. And it didn't scare me. I thought it would scare me, you know. And it sounds horrific to some people and it, it, it is scary, you know. But it wasn't because she was there and she was real. And I think as well all the physiological things that I was feeling, my body was like, where is this baby gone? And your, your, your boobs and everything. And even though I was sort of only halfway through my pregnancy, it was you still had all those things that you would at full term. Where's my bait? I need just everything. Um, but, you know, she was, it was different. Um, and then they, yeah, they came and took her away and she was cremated. And then that was our storm began, you know, as people talk about this storm and, you know, this rainbow baby at the end of it, which we were already thinking about at that moment, you know, it was that was the obsession had already started then for this other baby, um, but yeah, it was and then it was a really long time. I didn't leave the house. Oh, Mia's birthday was in May. She turned two in May, and I probably had only seen a handful of people, and that happened in January. It took me that long. God, you really feel like you're there with SJ as she describes that. It can be so difficult to listen to. But it's also so important we know how to support people around us who may have experienced something similar or for anyone that has experienced miscarriage and infant loss to know that they're not alone. And if this chat has brought up any discomfort, 24-hour support is available through SANS on 1300 072 637. When Kate Malvinen's daughter was just one, she had no choice but to leave her husband and the father of her child. He was addicted to ice. The drug had stolen the man she knew and loved and they needed to leave for their own safety. Not long after, Kate was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer at the age of just 39. After being told she had less than two years to live, she dedicated her life to saving her life. This episode with Kate, episode 3, is so powerful for so many reasons. Firstly, because Kate is a beacon of strength and resilience. And secondly, because you can't help but feel entirely swept up in her story as she speaks. I flew up to the Gold Coast to have this in, to have this conversation with her. And just like Mel did, she makes you feel like you've been best friends for so long. And she does truly make you feel like you can achieve anything you put your mind to. And I think that's what I, that, that tenacity, that infectious nature about her makes her just one of the most unique, special people I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. Here's Kate. 
last year you were exercising a lot. You'd started a new exercise regime and yes. you started having some aches and pains, which, are, you know, feels so normal when you start so exercising. So, you know, I had yeah. a rough year and I was, you know, in depression and on antidepressants and living on my own and it was turmoil. So, you know, I'm probably drinking a bottle of wine and I, mm. as, as we do, as we do, kids in bed, brilliant, my best friend could be a bottle of wine tonight. <laughs> and then I went, come on, cut out of this, you know, because I'm an active girl, I'm, I'm a go-getter, I'm, you know, I'm a force when I need to be. So I started going to the gym four, five, six times a week and I was loving it. I had a personal trainer. I feel like you're very black or white, all or nothing. All or nothing, absolutely. There's no grey zone here. That's yeah. it. That's it. So I had a personal trainer and, you know, created a great relationship there. But, oh, I got a pain in my back. And then it was in my shoulders. Then it was in my spine and went to the doctor. They said, go see a Cairo. So I did for a couple of months. Mm. The pain was still there, but I still pushed on at the gym. Halfway through the year, I started coughing blood. And I sort of said, and I took photos and I said to a friend of mine, is this bad? And she said, oh, yeah, probably get it checked out. Went mm. to the doctor. They said, oh, it's just bronchitis. Sent me away. Two weeks later, coughing more blood bronchitis my feet started to see I'm still going to the gym at this point yeah, I'm still wow. loving it and I was looking good I tell you I was looking fit and toned and my feet started getting really sore like some days I could hardly walk and I didn't know what that was and I went back to the doctor again and they put me on painkillers and long story short was I went back again for more painkillers but I said I've got a slight pain in my chest we got we got x-rays that day and I was sent for a CT scan the results came back that you have stage four terminal lung cancer Tests went ahead. My parents flew from England and everyone's thinking, this is awful. I'm thinking, no, it'll be fine. It'll be absolutely fine. Mm. I'm a non-smoker. I'm 39. I go to the gym. It's just the results came back that you have lung cancer. It's in your liver. It's in your lymph nodes. It's in your lungs, your hips, your, your ribs, your spine, your shoulders. There's nothing we can do for you. And I thought, you know, let's do chemo. There's nothing we can do for you. So I was, um, you know, suddenly your, your world stops spinning. Mm. And I look at my little girl and I just... You know, she was she was two, yeah. and I knew that I had to do do something. I had to fight, and I didn't know how to do it. I had to do something. So I was put on a targeted therapy drug. They said, "Well, this might get you eighteen to twenty four months to live. Eighteen to twenty four. Oh I've got a two year old. So by the time I she'll be she'll go and even be five. She'll be four years old. So." You know, my head was spinning, my heart was broken, the tears didn't stop, my family were here, we would just stare at each other, we didn't, there were no words, you know, I mean, I was pretty much told to, you know, get your affairs in order, because this is what's going to happen. Didn't one of them say as well, just go home and drink wine and enjoy the last of your time with I went to my GP, because it's my belief that sugar feeds cancer, I've now gone the alternate route, sugar feeds cancer, so I said to my GP, look, you know, sugar feeds cancer, I won't be drinking anymore, she said, that's ridiculous, Kate, now's the time you should drink, go home, drink that wine, spend time with your daughter, create some memories before you die. Just give up. Give up. Mm. So I was told by a radiologist, GP, an oncologist, and a lung specialist, there's nothing we can do for you, so for two very dark days, I thought I was going to die. What, how did you get up out of bed? What's running through your mind? Because how I have you a child, I have to get out of yeah. bed. You know, and I would, you know, we would go to bed at night and she'd be with me and I'd be crying into her hair and she'd say, Mummy, why is my hair wet? And I'd have to say, oh, Bubba, that's just your bot-bot. And she'd say, oh, silly Mummy. You know, and they just... You know, memories like that, you you can't shake those. So I've got a little girl who needs her mummy more than anything in the world. I've been told you are going to die. We cannot do anything. Take this drug, you know, we'll get you another six, eight months. Luckily, bumped into a friend of a friend and he said, you know, there's other ways. There's other ways. There's a clinic. It's called Hope for Cancer and it's in Mexico. You should think about going. I went to see an... A naturopath who studies oncology and she said, Kate, there's other ways. There's a clinic in Mexico. It's called Hope for Cancer. She said, give it a... By this stage, I thought, I'm going to have to go. I'm going to have to go. There's a three-week program, so I'm two weeks into diagnosis. 
there was a three-week program over there, and I thought, oh, that's a lot of money. It's about 30000 I called them up, $65,000. Wow. I said, I can't afford that. Right on cue, my little girl ran into the room. I'm looking at this beautiful two-year-old. I said, you know what? I can afford anything. I called them up. I said, sign me out. I'm coming. I didn't know what I was going into. I've never been to Mexico. You know, we hear about drug warfare mm. and the cartel, and I don't know what I'm doing. I called a friend and said, look, I've got to go to Mexico. Will you come? She said, yeah. The most incredible decision I've ever made. Within three weeks of being in Mexico, the lung tumour had reduced by 75%. I'd entered that clinic with seven cancerous lymph nodes in my... And if anyone knows anything about cancer, the lymph nodes are the last place you want to get it because oh, that's right, nasty. Okay. Yeah. Seven cancerous lymph nodes in my throat. After three weeks, six disappeared. By the time I had my first scan coming back to Australia, there was no cancer in my lymph nodes. At that first scan... The doctor said, wow, this is this is remarkable. The doctors here said that? Yeah. What did they put it down to? The drug they've, well, they put it down to the drug they've got me on. Yeah. But they've also said it's not going to save you, this isn't going to happen. One of them sort of gave me a bit of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge and said, continue whatever you're doing. Now, it is important to note with that one that Kate continues to this day to follow the advice of her doctors and she always says she's in no way a professional and will not give advice. She just did what she had to do to be alive today for her little girl and she's absolutely thriving. Not long after returning from Mexico and after we recorded this ep actually, Kate's doctors here in Australia told her the words every cancer patient wants to hear. NED, no evidence of disease. Yep, she kicked cancer in the ass, And as I said, she's absolutely thriving, living her best life with her daughter, Annabelle. Gosh, that story really does give me goosebumps. I couldn't not include Khadija Blah. If you've listened to our two-parter, episodes 35 and 37, you'll know why. If not, take a listen to this short snippet of my conversation with her. And it was actually so hard to pinpoint a section to play because every word that comes out of her mouth is just so amazing. But I managed to narrow it down. It was a very hard task. But Khadija is honestly one of the most amazing women I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. She fled civil war to start a new life here in Australia. She is also a victim of female genital mutilation. She now dedicates her life to putting an end to this horrific practice once and for all. Her work is so powerful She's literally stopped it happening to countless girls right here in Australia. I am in awe of Khadija, and I've no doubt you will be too. Now, there is a bit of a language warning with this one and a content warning if you've got little ears. Take a listen. As a child, your brain goes, how do I protect you? How do I help you survive this? So we hear a lot of people later on in life remembering something, whether it's through a smell, triggers a memory, or a touch triggers a memory. You're watching something which then triggers you. We see triggers. For me, looking at that picture triggered my memory because before I had no memory of yeah. FGM happening to me. I, I don't remember it. And as I looked at the picture, I looked at type 2 FGM, which is very common in West Africa, which is the one where they cut off the top, the, the, either the hood or the whole clitoris and sometimes one set of lips. I'm looking at this picture going, hmm, hmm. And then I started seeing pictures in my head. Wow. And I'm confused at this point going, what, 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 what is this? Like, it's like watching a movie in your head as the details are coming to, like a pictures are coming. I'm like, oh my God, this program is about girls like me. I went through this. This happened to me. 
I, th- I don't think I have words to describe to anyone what it felt like to have those, that, those memories come back, but to also feel the pain associated with the memories. Because I was like transported back to Gambia, back in that hut, that old lady holding me down, my mom pinning me there as this lady takes this rusty knife and cuts away at, at my flesh. Like the pain, it's like I was, it's like I was st- visually feeling it, even now. Then the pain, I, I have no words to describe the pain. And I think all this is probably one of those interviews where I'm going to take, we go more slowly to actually describe what that felt like for me. The pain, the anger at some point kicked in. The why, because the why, why, why will you do this? Why would my mom do this? Why would she make this decision? Why was I put to this? What's the point of it? The why? Because I had now spent months at this center understanding that this thing was meant to be bad. This thing that this lady was talking about, this FGM. It has health consequences from, if you're, you're lucky to not bleed to death, so it can be murder. You have infections, you have UTIs, infertility, cysts, fibroid, sexual dysfunction, uh, trauma, depression. It was the gift that literally fucking keeps giving. It doesn't stop. I'm going, why would my mom want that for me? Why would she want that to be my reality? Like, this why, the why, I get bogged down by the why. And even now, 18 years of being an advocate and activist in this space, everyone gets bogged down with the why. Because you want to know why. We live in a world where people decide to take knives, scissors, anything they can find to mutilate the genitals of little girl. Why? I have now joined the dots. My mom has subjected me to FGM. She made me go through this pain. And I need to know why. Why the woman who gave birth to me, who's meant to protect me and has protected me from other things. Mind you, she has protected me from other things. Why would she do this to me? So I went home and said, Mom, you did FGM to me. She said, what, what are you talking about? She said, you, you, you had FGM done to me. The language is not familiar to, to her. She's like, what are you talking about? I went, okay. You had somebody cut me down there. She went, oh, yeah, yeah, I did that. Very casual, yeah. But why will you do that to me? Why will you have somebody mutilate me? She's like, what is this mutilation you keep saying? It didn't add up to mutilation. What's this word? She said, yes, I did that to you. It was for your own good. My own good. Yeah, I was a good mom. A good mom. Subjecting your daughters to that. Yeah, it was a good mom. I did my job. How was it your job to do that? She said, it's what I had to do back home. If, if we don't do that to you, then you're not clean. You're, you're dirty. You don't belong. And you have no control over yourself. I mean, what are you talking about having no control over myself? If a girl is not caught, a woman's not caught, the clitoris, it, it will drive her crazy. She will have no self-control. She just wants sex. She has no self-respect. She said, so I've done you a favor. If you, you have a man and you don't feel like having sex with them, you won't have sex with them. You won't get that itchiness down there because you're being controlled. And I'm looking at her like she's from another planet. I'm looking at her going, what are you talking about? None of this adds up. None of this justifies why you would do an act like this. And I'm sitting there going, 
not acceptable to me. Not acceptable. No, I'm sorry. That's not acceptable. I am not buying. I am not sold on the fucking patriarchy's explanation for this. This is misogyny at its fucking best. And you have now convinced this woman that this is what they need to do. This is what, how they need to perform to be good mothers and good wives and good daughters. Fuck that. And it needs to stop. Sorry. So I remember the day I looked her in the eye, point my finger at her, which is so disrespectful once again. I'm lucky I didn't get a belt in that day. I was pushing it and said, it stops with me. She goes, what do you mean? I said, this. It stops with me. It stops in my generation. No other girl in our family will be subjected to this. My daughter, future daughters, if I have them, will not be subjected to this. And it stops in our community. So wherever I have influence, I'm putting all of you on warning. I'm giving you a warning. It's stopping. My chat with Khadija was so powerful, as you probably just heard then. I couldn't bear to cut any of it out, which is why it's in two parts. I highly urge going back and listening to the full episodes. Okay, this was so hard to narrow down just one section of my chat, just like Adija's. It's my chat with Erica Kramer. If you've listened to this two-parter, episodes 19 and 21, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. Erica's life story will hook you in from the moment the episode starts. She's been through more than most people endure in a lifetime. She's now a life coach, author and podcast host with a hugely loyal following and she calls herself the Queen of Confidence. Take a listen to this snippet of my interview with her and you'll very quickly understand why she calls herself that. Now, a trigger warning, we discuss sexual abuse. So when we were seven years old, my mom took us to Puerto Rico and she she had a boyfriend for like five years and he was like the closest thing to a dad. He was awesome. And she wanted to go to Puerto Rico, so she took the medication she needed to take and we were in Puerto Rico. And now my dad, who left me at two, is from Puerto Rico. I don't know him. I've seen photos of him. I used to scratch his face. And my mom never talked bad about my dad. Like, he wasn't like, he left us. Mm. So listen, single mothers, don't be doing that shit because no, it's not absolutely cool. absolutely not. Mm-hmm. It's horrible. It's You're putting your shit on your kid. So she didn't do that. And so when we got to Puerto Rico, she got really sick and ended up fighting with her boyfriend and jumping in the rental car. I didn't know this because I'm like seven years old. So she's like, we're leaving and it's raining and she starts driving really fast. And again, she was getting sick. So she thought someone was chasing her. She thought we were being followed by men who wanted to rape her. And I feel like she's had a lot of sexual abuse because she always goes to like a man's going to rape me. Which is really sad. So she is driving down these like crazy hills of Carolina. It's raining and we ended up smashing into this big tree, which I mean, it was like two cars wide, this tree. And we flipped the car three times and we landed upside down. And now behind this tree is a fucking ditch of water, like a cliff and a ditch. Like, thank goodness for that tree. Mm. So she gets me out upside down. I remember my bear, Lisa, which was like my teddy bear I took to every foster home. Mm. She was in the car. It was glass everywhere. We had kids. Do you remember kids, those sneakers? Mm-hmm. I don't remember. So like, I'm old. So the kids, <laughs> right? We both had kids on. I had kids, yeah. Yeah, they were awesome. And we got out of the car and there was a house there and she's like, let's go see if they can help us. Now, I don't speak Spanish at this time. So I'm like an American Puerto Rican girl doesn't speak any Spanish. She knocks on their door. The lady comes out. A guy comes out. And again, the, the guy comes out. She's like, they're going to rape us and kill us. We got to get out of here. So no one there to help us. No police. Like we didn't wait for the police. So we basically fled a scene of an accident that we created. And we're walking and day and night. 
in like three days. Like it was nighttime, daytime. We were sleeping on patios. Our fucking kids broke. We had some guy. We slept in some guy's car, and then like they woke up and said, "What are you guys doing in my car?" Kind of thing. And they were gonna drive us to the police. I thought. Then she's like, "They're gonna rape us and kill us." She opens the car. It's like going 50 miles per hour and like runs us out of the car like just tumbles out of a moving car to hide from these guys it was just like is this real shit and we talk about sounds like a movie it is and we actually have a 13 minute video of my mom because she gets funny with video but she's getting better and i'm like filming her i'm asking her questions about it because i'm like if she doesn't remember and i don't remember we don't get out like we're gonna twist because we've had so much trauma and so much things happen that your memory does kind of mesh things together so that happened and then we ended up at the police station and ended up at her house her sister's house her stepsister's house who then rang my dad and said and this is what I just found out when my dad and I just reunited after 20 years like this Christmas in 2019 and says to my dad you know your daughter's here Margie's gone crazy they almost crashed and killed themselves like you need to come and get her and so my dad rescued me according to him but according to me he kidnapped me and took me away from my mom Mm. my mom didn't know he was there she was mentally ill and I ended up staying with him for like eight months not at my will or my mom's will and it was so crazy to now finally hear that story but like we almost died you know like she was really not well Mm. and so she hates talking about it she used to get offended and I said ma you have to understand like I'm not trying to say you were a bad mother but like this stuff happened and for me I have my story And she thinks when I talk about it that all I want to talk about is how bad she was and how Mm -hmm. sick she was because she's in therapy as well. Mm -hmm. So the therapist is like, let's talk about all the positive stuff. But I'm like, you don't get to take away my story because that shit made me like. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's like that that lack of acknowledgement on her part because of the shame she has. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. Okay, so it's hardly surprising that after that episode went live, countless people sent me that emoji. You know that mind-blown one where its mouth is agape and its mind is literally blowing up? Yeah, that one. Well, it sums up that chat with Erica pretty succinctly, I think. Now, Joe Betts is the author of Grief, a guided journal for anyone experiencing, as you probably guessed, grief. Joe lost her husband and the father of her daughter very suddenly to an asthma attack one night three years ago. I really wanted to include this episode, episode 51, because what stuck out for me when speaking to Joe was this beautiful, raw vulnerability and this epic kind of, I guess, bravery opening up and sharing the worst night of her life with the world in the hope that it will help others who've experienced grief and help them feel less alone. She's honestly such a beautiful, special soul, and Jo really is a true gift to the world. Jo goes into heartbreaking detail about that night she lost her husband, Craig. This snippet can be difficult to listen to, but it's also really important. Here's Jo. It's kind of what resulted over those next sort of 20 to 25 minutes before, you know, help eventually arrived was, you know, Craig basically collapsed, you know, right in front of me over our toilet of all things. And, you know, the operator sort of saying to me, like, you're going to have to get him onto the ground. And I'm quite a small frame and Craig is quite a big guy. And I don't know, there's just so much in that moment that just felt like whatever could go wrong was going wrong. So it was the hard task of getting him, you know, onto the ground, then, you know, having to do compressions with him and, you know, um, Eventually the operator sort of saying to me, you're going to have to, you know, do four breaths into his mouth. And I hadn't realised that his head had somehow got lodged underneath our vanity, which had a space on once again up and 
moving him around again. And yeah, it was, I don't know, like it just felt like it was absolute chaos in that time. Like I, it's, there's a really, I think, dark side of me that almost wants to listen back to that triple O call because just to kind of know exactly what played out then, because in my mind, it seemed so frantic, so chaotic as I'm attempting to resuscitate him, nothing seemed to be working and, you know, screaming for help and kind of feeling like help was not coming or felt, you know, so far away. And I guess in the back of my mind too, I'm feeling like, where's my daughter? I don't know where she is. And I was really worried that she had either wandered out to the street on her own or whether she was cowering somewhere in our lounge room and then being terrified that she was going to walk in on what was playing out in the Mm. bathroom um, with Craig and I. And I just, you know, when you're just kind of going, what, what choice do you make at that point? Is it protecting your child from seeing something that you would never want them to be exposed to or, you know, trying to save your husband's life. So it was, you know, it was a very desperate time for me. Um, Yeah, eventually help did come in the form of, you know, some paramedics who, yeah, they worked on Craig for, you know, almost an hour. And, you know, in that time, thankfully, I was able to find Heidi, you know, was actually still tucked up in our bed. I think when Craig had got out of the bed, the covers had fallen over her. So, you know, paramedics are working. I'm trying to shift my child from one room to another and hoping that she doesn't wake up. And um, yeah, thankfully she didn't. And I think I'll always be really, yeah, grateful that she slept through, slept through that. But yeah, I think upon sort of having her settled, just coming out and thinking far out, like this is really, really, really bad. Um, you know, the paramedics sort of said to me to, to keep away in that time. And so I was just kind of sat at my kitchen table, just, you know, you're all alone. You don't know what to, yeah, you don't know what to think in that time. And I think my brain was firing through like a lot of things. And there's part of you going, oh God, this is really bad. I've probably, I maybe lost him in this. I think there's another side of you going, I know he hasn't been breathing for 20 to 25 minutes. So even if they can get him back, what's, what does that mean for us? And interestingly, there was another side of it that my brain was actually saying, well, it is what it is. You're just going to have to do it. Whatever this result is, you're just going to have to do it. And and yeah, after an hour, they kind of came out to me and said, we've tried everything that we can do. And um, we never got anything from the moment that we arrived and yeah, that's all we can do. He's died. So it's, yeah, it's, um, I don't know, like it's the most surreal experience you'll ever go through. And I think in that moment, you just feel like I just felt utter defeat and it's really hard to describe like almost like my whole body just kind of didn't collapse. It was more, more so like a slump just kind of going like, God, like I've tried everything I could. And I just, I, you know, I'm such a problem solver in life and this was a problem that I just simply couldn't solve. And yeah, like, and then all of a sudden, you know, the paramedics are kind of like, well, 
right, so we're off. We're going to essentially tag team with the police. So the police have to come because it's an unexpected death because he was young. So then this, you know, she was a really beautiful police officer came and, you know, they're asking you questions and um, she kind of said to me, you know, I'm, I'm aware that there's a child in this home. What time does she wake up? And so at this stage I'm thinking it's probably about 4.30 in the morning. And I said, oh, mm. Heidi should be awake anywhere between 6 and 6.30. And she kind of said to me, well, can we make a bit of a call as in if, with your permission, can we get Craig's body out of here? before she wakes up. So I agreed and it just seemed like the right thing to do at that point. Um, so, yeah, I think once the police had sort of, you know, been there, they organised for undertakers to come in and they kind of said to me, right, you've got, you've got an hour um, or 45 minutes or so that you can spend with him and you just, I don't know, you're just dealing with these insane things you just never thought imaginable, things like, you know, because he was still laid out and they'd moved him from our bathroom to our bedroom, like, do you want him put into your bed? And going, well, yeah, yeah, I guess so. Like, let's make him comfortable. Do you want the wedding ring or do you prefer that to stay with him? And I'm like, oh, you know, I think, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll take the wedding ring. And then all of a sudden you're kind of faced with having to spend time with, you know, a dead body that, you know, I, I it's so funny because I probably would have thought if anyone ever had to, said to me you would be in a room with a dead body, I would have said absolutely no way. I'm a bit of a scaredy cat with things like that. But there was absolutely no fear whatsoever, just this like wanting to, just wanting to be with him and, I guess that was my chance to kind of say to him how much I loved him. And there's a lot of me, I guess, saying to him that I'm sorry. And I, I recall like my mum and my sister had arrived by this time sort of saying to me, you've got nothing to be sorry about. You've tried everything that you can. And I was like, it's actually, it's not, not even that. I'm just, I'm so sorry that he's like missing out on like, you know, as I said, he was like larger than life and he's missing out on life, but more so he's missing out on our little girl. And I know he'd be so pissed off about that. <laughs> so yeah, I'd, you know, I just spent that next sort of hour with him and then yeah, away they took him and all of a sudden you're going, God, so between the hours of 2.30 and 5.30 AM, my life as I've ever once knew it had just been completely like decimated. Oh, that still gets me that episode. I'm so thankful Jo felt comfortable to open up like that and share her experience. She's helping so many people now with her guided journal. I'm so honoured she was on this podcast. Now, I had to include my chat with Hugh because, well, it's one of my favourite episodes and Hugh is also my favourite author of my favourite book, The Resilience Project. If you follow me on Instagram, you know I fangirled hard 
that he even agreed to come on this podcast. It's actually a little bit embarrassing when I think back to it. But I was really excited. This was definitely, truly a highlight of the last year of Lemonade. I found this conversation, episode 52, with you so joyful. It was a pleasure hearing about all about his life experiences, how they shaped him to be who he is today, and how that led him to his purpose, which is the Resilience Project, a curriculum based on three principles – gratitude, mindfulness, and empathy. In the 10 or so years since its inception, it's now reached more than a million Australians, ranging from school kids to athletes to corporate workplaces. Hugh believes these principles are key to living a happier life. Here's Hugh Van Kylenberg. What was that period like in between being a full-time teacher and what would then become the Resilience Project? Very hard. Like, I suppose quite ironic extremely challenging because I um, yeah, got back from India and my partner and I then, my ex and I broke up and we were engaged. So that was a really quite a brutal thing. I wouldn't recommend getting engaged and breaking up to anyone. Yeah. Um, done that, been uh, there, done that too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel, I get it. <laughs> oh, shit house, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's just, yeah, <laughs> brutal. Mm. Oh my gosh. It's still one of the lowest feelings I've ever had. Um, yeah. Uh, but so that had happened. And at the same time, I thought, oh, I don't think I'm going to teach him. I'm going to set up the resilience project. And then no one wanted to know about, like I went to so many schools and spoke to principals and said, Oh, doing this program and it's about resilience. And we teach these things. And every principal would go, well, who else have you done it for? And I'd go, oh, you guys will be the first. Um, but yeah, I think it'll be, you know, I'll do it for free. And they'd still go, no, nah, if it's free, it can't be that good. So now we're fine. So had gone from being in a very secure relationship and having a very secure job um, and to all of a sudden um, I was in no relationship and I had no job really. I had this, I was trying to do this thing, the resilience project, but no one was interested in it. And it was a really, really, really tough time. And I have some wonderful friends that I, that got me through it, but it was incredibly hard. And those principles, I suppose that I talk about definitely, definitely got me through um, because at my lowest, it was things like, you know, I've got my health and, you know, sun comes up tomorrow. Um, I'm still playing cricket. I love cricket and got my friends and just focusing on the small things that sort of kept me going, but there wasn't much positives in my life. And I've always felt a lot of pressure to make mum and dad proud and to have them get a lot of joy out of my life because I felt that, and that's, you know, I've since realized that that's a ridiculous thing to do, but I still feel the pressure of, of that um, just being the eldest and with what my sisters went through. And so I found it, you know, I love mum and dad and I want to be around them. But even when I was around them, I felt a little bit anxious because I was like, I've, I've got no good news for mum and dad here. Like, there's nothing making them proud right now. I'm doing nothing that's making them proud. And I realise now you don't need to be achieving stuff every day to make mum and dad proud. You know, we're all, that's a really important message to understand that we are all worthy of love and affection as we are. We don't have to be, you know, achieving great things in the world. We are, but I didn't know that and I just felt like, I'm doing nothing to make their lives better at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, all they hear about is me not going to be able to get any work and the fact that I'm out drinking a lot because <laughs> I'm single and just like, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, Heart, single and heartbroken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great company, those people. They're great. <laughs> yes. No one wants <laughs> yeah. to be stuck with them at a party. <laughs> no, nah, because you're like, you're trying to make everyone think you're so happy and like, you're just like, oh, this is great. I'm so happy now. This. I don't have a. <laughs> I like, and it's just, yeah, so yeah. it was really hard. There's a really tough few years in my life and I, um, 
I look back on it and and um and and I'm honestly happy I went through it because it's like you know the experience I had there with that breakup and it's just made me a much better partner now like with Penny I'm a much better partner because of what I went through mm. in my previous relationship um and so yeah it's all you know often like we said before you don't understand at the time why things are happening to you but if you have an attitude that um this will make me stronger at some point. And some point I'll look back on this point and think, well, if this didn't happen, I wouldn't be doing this or whatever it is. And um, yeah, if I didn't go through a heartache, I guess I, I probably wouldn't have. Um, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a much better partner now. Yeah. I sound like a broken record with this one, but if you haven't read The Resilience Project or listened to the audiobook version, which is what I did, I highly suggest going and doing that ASAP, if not sooner. I am not exaggerating. The Resilience Project did change my life and I've got that many people onto it, friends, family, even my son's dad and male, female, it doesn't matter what age, everybody that has gone on to read it has said it's had just as a profound impact on them as it did on me. So please do yourself a favour and go and pick up a coffee. You might have noticed I finish every interview the same way and that's asking my guests one simple question. What advice would the version of them sitting in front of me give the version of themselves navigating the darkest, most difficult moments in their life? I love this question and the answers I receive because every time, you know, it always comes at the end of an interview and you've just been on this really deep dive with your guests for the last hour or so where they've trudged through the worst, hardest moments of their life and it all it all culminates with this answer and you can hear all of the wisdom, all of the insight, all of the gratitude pouring through their answer and all of the love and the compassion that they have for these past this past version of themselves too. It's really, really beautiful to witness because we can get so, I think, and I know with me, we can get so bogged down in feeling so angry at ourselves when we're not as far ahead in our healing journey as we would have liked. But when you hear these answers, you realize the only way out of a situation is to have compassion for every stage you're at and then one day you'll be able to look back with the wisdom of hindsight and marvel at all that was taken from you and appreciate that you have the strength to get to where you are today so I've done a super cut of the answers of every guest I've ever had on answering that very question and what's remarkable is all of their stories as you probably know everyone I've had on all of their stories are remarkably different yet there are so many similarities in the advice for their past self and I find that really interesting it's just this beautiful moment in the interview and so many times these answers bring me to tears when I listen back on it because these are the words that I needed to hear when I was in my darkest moment so I hope these words help someone else out there too so here it is me asking every guest what advice they have for their former self going through their darkest patch. That there is a silver lining. There is light at the end of the tunnel. There are a lot of times where I thought there wasn't. I felt like my whole world was crashing down around me. Um, I think the only thing I could have told her is just, just promise you it will get better. And that pain of losing mum will always be there, but there's, you know, it, it will get a little bit easier um, and there'll be so many other wonderful, positive things in your life um, that you'll be okay. And I have always believed that everything happens for a reason. Again, I don't think there's a reason that I needed to lose my mum. But I have always believed that, you know, you, you 
you come out the other side of things. You look back at things and go, oh my God, I got through that. And I think I just would have reminded that Georgia that, you know, you will, you will get out of it. It would be to feel the moment, to not um, band-aid emotions. You have to feel the hard stuff. And as hard as it is, you have to ride that wave. And you, you need to feel that, but then you also need to have the strength to overcome that. And whatever that is for you, you have to do it. So everybody has different ways of getting through things. Everybody has different ways of healing. It's about getting in touch with yourself, even having time, just space on your own to just completely focus on you, to be able to move forward and overcome those feelings and emotions is, is what's important. I would probably like, like to remind myself early days that, and I think I say this all the time, actually, that I'm not for everyone and everyone's not for me. Like, I think back then my darkest days were when I was shut up and not saying anything because I was trying to remain quiet and didn't want to be vulnerable, scared of not being liked and losing people. And I think that, uh, yeah, I'd probably tell myself that like you have to lose people in order to realize certain lessons so that you can grow. And they might be people that you wouldn't even imagine. It might even, like, it can be a death in the family. It could be that you lose your mum. Like, it doesn't have to be a heartbreaking love story. Like, it can be that, you know, you've lost your parent or a sibling or a friend. Like, I don't know. I just think that when you do lose those people in your life, you do, you get, you get smacked in the face with lessons. And I think that, yeah, I'm not for everyone and everyone's not for me. If I had have just been a bit more open and, shared that with people at the time um I would have lost lost the people that I held on to probably a bit too long and I probably would have learned those lessons sooner but yeah and I think to trust the process it doesn't matter what's happening to you right now like all of this is going to make sense you have to keep going like you have to keep going you have to keep shining you're going to be okay not only okay but you're going to make it and it was always what I would say to myself is you're going to be okay you're not going to die you're going to be okay and it was like if I don't die if I'm alive still, then I have another chance. So even when I didn't want to, it was always like, you're going to be okay. And this year I had to change that because I don't want to be okay. I want to fucking kill it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, energetically I had mm -hmm. to change that. But that is what got me through. And it was like this voice, this thing, like a coat hanger holding me up. And even though I was like hanging from a thread and my buttons were on the ground and I'm like, I'm fucking done. It was like the coat hanger was like, no, you're going to be okay. I'm holding you up. You can drag down there, but you're going to come back up and we're going to button you up and you're fucking awesome. But then it would like, so it was just like that. It was like, whatever happens, you can do this. You're super strong. You're going to be okay. I would just always say to myself, like, hanging there, you, you will learn so much from this, even though, it is so hard, but you will come out the other side. I just think to, to give herself time, because as most people are, I was very impatient just to be over it. And just to know that if you give it time and you know take small steps to move forward every day, then one day you will reach a space where you can say, maybe not I'm free of it, but you know I'm free enough of it to be able to live the full life that I want to live. I think probably not that um, dissimilar to what I said before is that, you know, it's not always going to feel 
this horrible um, and that you will smile again, you'll be happy again and it's not going to be the same and it's something you have to live with but, you know, you'll definitely be happy again. It's interesting because the Blake now um, was telling the Blake then the same thing in terms of just take it one day at a time and it'll open up, you know, and, and I, I've, I've spoken to obviously a lot of people down in Melbourne who are struggling and, you know, I, I couldn't see how the grass was green. I couldn't see light at the end of the tunnel in it, you know, and, and while everyone kind of says, oh, there'll be light at the, the end of the tunnel, you know, for me when I was really dark, I kind of felt like telling those people to go fuck themselves because I just didn't want to hear that. And, you know, I just had to step one foot in front of the other and eventually it was going to open up and it did and it's, you know, blossomed into the, the, the best I've ever been. Life, you know, kind of happens, you know, for you, not to you. And everything that I went through has happened for me. And again, couldn't see that in the moment, but the breakups, the getting fired from all the jobs, everything has happened for me, not to me. So that's how I see it now. I would tell her that it would be, it, everything's going to be okay and you may not see it now and it may take a long time, but just keep up. And I would tell her that your, your goals in life um, don't have to be limited. I think that's one thing I worried about as a 15-year-old that I would just have to just get a leg and just never have any of these amazing hopes and dreams and things that I was aiming for and just to say keep going, keep aiming and you'll be okay. You'll meet the most amazing people in your life. You will travel the world Um and yeah, just you, you, you'll have beautiful children. So I think, and you can still do all that and meet somebody amazing as well. It'll all be okay. It will all be fine. And that's it really, because, you know, you, when you're in that zone, I think that when someone tells you anything more, you're not really thinking you're a bit unreasonable. But I think that if you can just drum that into someone that it will all be okay, this will pass. That's all you need to hear because it just plants that little seed of hope. I would tell myself that, you know, every step is a new step to where you need to go. And so I would, I'd, I'd say one step at a time. And then I would also tell myself, instead of thinking about where you're at and how hard it is and the depths of everything, you know, close your eyes and imagine what the life that you want looks like and you know really create this beautiful world in your thoughts and write it down on paper and just create it draw it do whatever it needs to be to to set the scene of what you want and where you want to go how it feels what it looks like the smell of it how your you know your kids behave um, all of those things create that and then that is, that's, that is what you focus on every day to get you moving forward as opposed to the opposite direction. In a non-cliche way, like, it'll pass. But I use that in everything. Like, recently I was saying that I'd ended something with someone and that, like, that initial pain, like, it wasn't a very long thing or anything, but you just like, it'll pass. It's going to go. Like, things come and go and pain comes and goes and happiness comes and goes. Like, it all comes and goes and I think in the middle, like, you know, you're sitting in the middle of the night, the child won't sleep. Just being able to know that this is moment is not forever and it will pass and it will get better is a really powerful thing mm. to be able to tell yourself. You're like, okay, it's just today. I will sleep at some point in the future. I will 
have a shower, like just those kind of things. Um, yeah. And also maybe just be gentle on yourself. I'd say, please tell someone, please share this with someone and that it will all be okay when you do. That's nice and simple. I, I, it makes me want to cry thinking about if I could go back and actually talk to myself and just say, Lauren, it's, it's going to be okay. And you'll get there predominantly on your own. Never would have thought that. And I don't think Lauren back then would have believed it either. I don't think I'd, I'd give her any advice actually, because I firmly believe that when you're in that situation, you'll work it out because you're, you're moving from, you know, that inertia of this is a crap situation to, okay, I'm going to fix it. When you go into Centrelink, that's a forward step, even though it feels yuck, it's still progressing. I think all I would do is just give her a hug and say, girlfriend, you got this. Enjoy the ride. I'll see you in five years. This too shall pass. And I'm not sure if that's a Bible quote because I'm not religious and I think it is. But <laughs> and yeah, there are some things for me, like my leg, it's not going to grow back. No matter how much turmeric I have, it will not grow back. But so much, it, it passes. And that which it doesn't, like I said before, you're so much stronger than you think you are and you will get through it. Stay on the floor and embrace, kind of embrace it um, because it's part of that process and you have to, you can't rush that process and you can't control it. You have to just, when you wake up and wherever your mind and your heart and your body take you that day, you just have to own it. And that's with anything, with what you've been through, what anyone's going through. Okay, today's a shitty day. We're just going to, cool, that's fine. It is what it is. And just, you've got to go with it. Whereas I definitely felt, I just need to get pregnant. I just need to have a baby. I just need to get up off the floor. I need to get up off the floor. I have to do this. or Just stay. Like, I think you got this, but more so than that is like, I wish I started seeing a therapist in my 20s. Like anybody listening to this, like if you find the right fit, run with your therapist because you will be able to grow exponentially in every single part of your life. The stigma of mental health has got to go, like it's got to go because it's so, it is like your superpower seeing a therapist. It sounds simple, but just the fact that it's all going to be okay. Like it's, I promise you, like I promise you, it doesn't feel like it right now, but everything's going to be fine. And you know, your mum is going to be sick and dad's going to be sad and things are going to be hard, but in the end, it's all going to be okay. And you'll figure it out. Like, you know, yeah, mum's mum died and that sucks, but I'm okay. Like, you know, I'm okay. We keep going, we keep moving. That's just life. And, you know, I think someone once said to me, um, everything is okay in the end. If it's not okay, then it's not the end. And I think that that's really good advice. You'll figure it out. You know, we just do. You've got to, you just, you've got no choice. You just keep on going. So yeah, I'd tell myself it's all going to be okay. I promise. I think just get outside, look up at the sky and think um, today's a shitty day and I'm in the middle of a bit of a shitty moment, but um, tomorrow is going to be a new day. And um, by getting this fresh air in, um, it might give you that little bit of strength to make that call or, or to open up to someone to tell them how you're feeling. So get outside of your four walls, look up, um, look around and, and have some positive vibes and, and 
it'll hopefully hopefully make you feel a little bit better. Just keep going uh, because it does get better. It gets better and that's it. It just, it gets better. And tell her that it gets better and that she's never dealt anything that she can't handle. Um, and I'd remind her that she's not alone, that there are people always that are just a message away or just a call away. Um, and I'd tell her that she's so loved and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what her life looks like to other people. So long as she feels good, do that. And, and the people who love you will stand by you. And that's all that matters. It will be okay. This is not what you think it's going to be. You will be happy. Your son will be happy, but it's also totally fine to feel like total shit right now. Don't beat yourself up about that. This is a challenging situation and you're scared and that's fine. But yeah, this will be good. This will teach you so much. You're going to meet incredible people who will just completely blow your mind. And yeah, your son is, is and is going to be this wonderful, happy bright child yeah you will be okay it's hard but that's okay keep going because you can't move forward without moving forward what i say to her is that you are worthy you are so worthy even in your darkness even in your bad times you are so worthy of everything you are worthy no matter what the world have said you are worthy and powerful beyond measure. Because little Khadija is powerful. She's powerful. That's why the world, from the get-go, tried to knock her down. Take her out of the game quickly. It's like, let's take her out. You are that powerful. So when the world comes at you, even when those who you're meant to be safe with come at you, when they try to cut you down, you know you are worthy and powerful beyond measure and you stand in that truth because that's what's going to get you on the other side to then welcome me, adult Khadija, because of that. You are worthy. And to our listeners, you are all worthy and powerful beyond measure. Everything you've been through, everything that's been thrown your way and the fact that you're still alive today, you're still kicking, you're still here, is because you are worthy and powerful beyond measure. Don't ever let anyone take away your power and, t- and make you feel not worthy because you are. You are powerful and worthy and you deserve to be here and the world is a better place because of your presence. Even if you do nothing except exist, that is powerful. What I would say to myself at so many key junctions in my life is that you are worthy of love and affection as you are right now. You don't need to be the best cricketer. You don't need to be the most um, energetic, like lively person in the room. You don't need to be the funniest person in the room. You don't need to um, be the best looking, which is always good news for me, but uh, <laughs> you, don't, you don't need to be, you know, all these things. You're just like, you're wor- like you're, you're worthy. You are worthy. And there are times where, you know, straight after the breakup with my ex-fiancee when I wasn't really working, I felt so unworthy of connection and just I felt so low. And I was very lucky. I never really dipped into anything like depression or anything. I was just very lucky that way. But I felt, I didn't really feel very worthy of showing up in the world. I felt a little bit ashamed of the fact I didn't, I was 28 or 29 and didn't have a job really and had no money to my name and and no no chances of ever meeting anyone. Um, 
but um, I would I would I would say you're worthy, and that's a message to everyone, no matter what you're going through in life, right now, that you are worthy of love and affection as you are. You don't need to be the perfect mum or dad to be worthy of love from your kids. You don't need to be earning a huge salary. You as a person, as you are, you're worthy. Um, and the people that make you feel that, um, despite how much money you're earning or despite what clothes you wear, they're the people you want to spend your time with, yeah. uh, the people who make you feel worthy when you're at your lowest. Yeah, there's, there's brighter days ahead. There's brighter days ahead and you'll be just fine. <laughs> making me cry I've become a whole sook throughout all this you know things that are sad made me cry things that are happy made me cry I just cry because it's because it's Thursday but yeah 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 it would be that there are brighter days ahead be strong keep your thoughts positive and, and you'll be just fine you made the right choice by choosing life um, and I knew that in the moment that I did but I would you know pat her on the back and go well done life's been pretty shit since then but look at you you got out of that moment when you thought you couldn't picture your future you couldn't picture yourself out of that bathroom and you did it and here's your friggin glass of lemonade it's beautiful it's sweet it's not as sour as you thought it would be <laughs> that's all for this very special episode of lemonade to mark one year of the podcast i still can't freaking believe it i hope you've enjoyed this journey down memory lane i know i really loved putting it all together and re-listening to some of those interviews that have a really special place in my heart. If you would like to give Lemonade a birthday present, please leave a review, hit five stars, tell your friends about this podcast and share it on social media. It helps boost the podcast and means it will hopefully reach even more people who could perhaps benefit from this breed of positive media. Thank you so much for all of your support over the last year. Seriously, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for listening every week. Thank you so much for telling people about it. Thank you so much for the people that have left reviews. I'm just so humbled and blown away. I can't wait to see what the next year has in store for Lemonade. I'll be back as normal next Monday. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.